our attention now to our subject uh, of Advent, Handling Christmas, and our text of the morning. And uh, if you will turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we know this is the text of There Was No Room in the Inn. And uh, that's the way that this text ends, and we get a description uh, of the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ that Luke allows us into. And let's read this text responsibly, as is our custom. I will start with the odd number verse, the first verse, and uh, you pick up the even number. I do want to draw attention to verse 2. There is going to be a name in there that we might stumble over. Pronounce it Quirinius. Okay? Let's practice that. Quirinius. Oh, you are so good. Uh, So that'll just flow off your tongue when we get to that, that second verse. Verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. What would you consider to be the preeminent Christian virtue? Most of us would probably immediately reply, well, love, of course. But let me nuance the quality of love and shade it toward humility. I believe that humility is the preeminent virtue of the Christian faith. Now, why would I say that? Because of the gift that Christianity offers to the world. The eminent Christian thinker, C.S. Lewis, was asked the question, what do you consider unique about Christianity? What, what do you think sets Christianity apart from all the other faiths? And without a moment's hesitation, he said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace is the gift that Christianity offers to the world. And if grace, if God's undeserved favor toward an ungrateful humanity, then humility is the result in those who know that they are in need of grace, right? One of the angles from which we could look at the Christmas story is how God uses power. God himself came to us in humility. See, the core of the human problem is the opposite of humility. It's pride. It's one-upmanship. It's competing with God himself for supremacy. It's not just about being rich, smart, or (laughs) good-looking. It's about being richer, smarter, or better looking than somebody else. That's what pride is. And when you pass pride through the, through the grid of power, you get privilege and position and rank over others. We're constantly scrambling to the top, posturing to look better than we are. And this is why the Christmas story is so shocking. God comes to us, quite frankly, in weakness. God slips onto the human stage in the form of a helpless baby, not wrapped in silk sheets surrounded by royalty and splendor, but in the most ordinary and nondescript circumstances imaginable. 
As we come to the story of the birth of Jesus recorded in Luke's account, uh, we already know something about the identity of who this one that is in Mary's womb. In Matthew's account, we are told that the angel said to Matthew, name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And then he was given the title, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke's account and says to Mary that the one in your womb is going to be the son of the most high God. And he will come from the line of David, and, which means he will be the Messiah. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. With the birth of this royal son, we might expect some great fanfare. But there were no trumpeters with regal garb accompanied with a royal birth announcement. We didn't hear anything like, hear ye, hear ye, at midnight at zero A.D., God the Son was born to the proud parents of Mary and Joseph. Nothing quite like that. Yet Christmas is about how God displays his power in humility. The creator God, the one who called all things into being, came to us in weakness. The one who said, let there be light and there was light, came to us in the form of a dependent and vulnerable baby. The one who moves all things after the counsel of his will, who causes human sovereigns to do his bidding, slips onto this planet in obscurity. The royal one before whom Isaiah quaked entered into the womb of a teenage peasant girl. The Christmas story is about how God intends to break our hearts with his overwhelming grace. The power of grace stoops to where we are. So let's see how Luke combines the sovereignty of God over history with the weakness of God as he enters the human story. We pick up Luke's account uh, with Luke giving us a historical context in which Jesus was born. Now, I think Luke did this for at least two reasons. The first reason was that he wanted us to know that this baby Jesus lived a life in a particular time, in a particular place, and he was real human flesh. He was a product of history. He had a real story. But the second thing I think Luke wants us to know is that God uses even the power of the people of this world to accomplish his purposes. So let's look at Luke at let. Let's look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 3. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Now, we tend to divide human history into the reigns of particular kings or rulers, right? Well, Caesar Augustus was the first and considered to be the greatest of all the Roman emperors. As the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, he reigned from B.C. 27 to A.D. 14. He expanded the Roman Empire throughout all the Mediterranean world and established what became called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The boot, the foot of Rome was on the neck of the Roman Empire. That's worldly power. And we're told that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, a Roman province in which Judea, the biblical land, was located. 
And we also know from Matthew and Luke's account that Jesus was born at the time when Herod the Great was alive. Now, we have a little bit of trouble with the dating here because we know from after the Gregorian calendar was established that exactly that Herod the Great was born, was died about 4 B.C. I guess that, and then that puts Jesus about 6 B.C. in terms of his actual birth. I guess that means that Jesus was born about six years actually before he was born. Uh, but I think Luke's point here is that he's saying that Jesus isn't a myth meaning a person who having an only imaginary and unverifiable existence. Nor was he a legend. Jesus was a flesh and blood being who occupied time and space in a particular era with a real story and a real history. But for Luke, the most important reason for these historical coordinates is that God used Caesar Augustus to fulfill his purposes. The title Augustus literally means exalted one. The Roman Senate had voted that Caesar was, in fact, divine. But I like the way Bruce Larson sums it up. He said, at his Caesar's funeral, his mourners comforted themselves with the belief that he was a god and therefore immortal. The man believed to be a god intercepted in time and space that God became a man. Caesar issued a decree that a census should be taken throughout all the Roman Empire. We know from historical records that this occurred every 14 years. And we actually have one of those decrees that has been found archaeologically, a decree from a Roman official in Egypt, a territory that Rome covered. It goes like this. You'll see it on the screen. Gaius Vibius Maximus, prefect of Egypt, orders, seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house census, it is necessary to order all those who have any cause whatsoever are residing outside their districts to return to their homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments. You know what that word allotments refers to? Taxes. Yeah, we always have euphemisms for that. Even they did back in those days. So there was two reasons to go back to your home of origin. First was to find out how much tax you had to pay. Secondly was to see who qualified to be a part of the Roman military. Now, if you were a Jew, you only had to see what taxes you uh, are required to to pay because you were exempt from military service. Yet the Lord had, I think, another purpose as one who controls the rudder of history. The Lord's plan was to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in the town of David in Bethlehem. David's family was from? Bethlehem. And the prophecy was that that's where the Messiah would be birthed. Now, although Jerusalem became known as the city of David, the family registry for King David's descendants was kept in Bethlehem. The story of the God-man's humble birth, though, continues with the travels of Joseph and Mary that they made from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this is how Luke records it. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee of Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Well, in one sentence, uh, Luke has covered the travels from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Sounds fairly easy. But in fact, anybody reading that would have thought, wow, this is an arduous and difficult journey to be held at this particular time of the year. In fact, we have a a map illustration of this. Uh, We have Nazareth here located in North Country. This is the Sea of Galilee running along the Jordan River down to 
down south. You cut over here to Bethlehem, which is just a few, about five miles from Jerusalem. Now, this was an arduous task. Noted that they didn't go directly south, because why? That's the territory of Samaria, and Jews did not travel through these, this territory, which was a, a hated people. Now, they went on probably donkey, about a 90-mile tour down. A person could travel about 10 miles a day on a donkey, especially with a woman uh, sitting side saddle on a donkey who was about to give birth to a child. One of the archaeologists said that if they traveled in the winter of the year, this, the, the, the weather would have been an awful like, like New Jersey. It's 30, in the 30s during the day, uh, raining like heck, nasty and miserable. So they went across unpaved, hilly trails and nasty weather were all a part of the hazards that were faced. But that wasn't at all that took place. Uh, they came across, along uh, wooded areas where there would have been predators like lions and bears. And if they didn't get you, the robbers and the thieves might. So most likely, Mary and Joseph traveled in a caravan for protection so that uh, they could arrive at their safe place. Now, there were no holiday inns and travel lodges <laughs> along the way. Uh, travelers had to bring with them all of their own provisions, food, water, and clothing, and anything resembling an inn was more in line with what would be for beasts of burden. You would come across an inn, and that was an open courtyard with some stalls along the side. There would be food there for the animals and warmth for a fire, but you had to wrap yourself in your own woolen blanket at night. So this was a pretty arduous journey over these nine days to arrive in Bethlehem. Now, if this form of travel wasn't humbling enough, what about the marital circumstances that surrounded the birth of Jesus? We read in verse 5, He, Joseph, went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Mary, for all intents and purposes here, is an unwed mother. You might recall when Joseph initially receives word that Mary is pregnant and they have not come together uh, to create a child, that his first thought was what? She has cheated on me. What else could you think in that circumstance? Now, the marriage customs are quite a bit different than what we are used to. The first stage for marriage in those days is engagement. Now, we think of engagement as a couple dating for a period of time, and then once they fall in love, the the man asks the woman for his hand in marriage. Engagement happened probably when Mary and Joseph were children through an arranged marriage where the parents brought together or a matchmaker made the connection between them. The next stage is betrothal. And that's where we are at our particular story this morning. Mary was pledged to be married to to Joseph. About a year prior to the official marriage arrangement, the couple would be betrothed to each other. They would be actually called husband and wife, but they did not have the privileges of the marriage bed during that time. Betrothal could only be terminated by divorce. This is what Joseph and initially intended to do until he got word, in fact, that the child in Mary's womb was of the Holy Spirit. If a husband died during this period, a woman was called a virgin who is a widow. But then the third stage is the actual marriage itself. This is a time of great celebration. It's not just one day in the Jewish context, it's seven days. Couples don't go on honeymoons. They actually bring the wedding party to their own house. So they celebrate for a week of festivities, a great festival. In fact, for a poor married couple, it's considered to be the happiest week of their life. And they enjoy it fully. And thus, the rabbis would say, all in attendance in the bridegroom 
are relieved of all religious observance, which could lessen the joy. Now, we don't know whether Mary and Joseph ever had this chance to celebrate in this way uh, the marriage that they, they enjoyed. Probably not. What we do know is that there was a later reference that the religious leaders used against Jesus around, about the circumstances of his birth. You might recall in John chapter 8, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees uh, that they are really not truly descendants of Abraham spiritually. And what is the retort that they, are, they bring back? Almost the trump card that they play. We are not illegitimate children, as if to say, like you are. So Jesus was born in disgrace. Well, if life hadn't been difficult enough to this point, the actual circumstances of Jesus' birth were not fit for a king. So we read in verses 6 and 7. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. I think the first thing we have to do is get out of our minds those wonderful crash scenes that most of us have in our homes made out of ceramic. As if this is an ideal setting. I chuckle every time I sing the se- second verse of Away in the Manger, which we're going to do at the end of the service. It goes like this. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? I think not. The latest scholarly thinking is that Jesus was not born in a stable cut from a hillside cave, but most likely in overcrowded home. Now, let's look at this, the screen here and, and see. A peasant home, which was probably the context in which Jesus was born, uh, was, had a one main room, a living area. Many would have a guest room added to it because this is a hospitality society and you want to be able to put up guests when they come there. The word used here uh, for the inn is the word for guest room. Now, there is a common word used in the Greek language for the word inn. It's used in Luke chapter 10 in the Good Samaritan story uh, where the Good Samaritan takes the injured person to an inn. Luke does not use that word here. He uses the word kataluma in the Greek, which is translated guest room. The Today's international translation captures this. There was no guest room available to them. Now, the setting was that people lived in a one-room house, one large room. And, uh, and then at the end of that room that sloped in this direction, there was a drop-down area, which was a stable. And the animals would be brought in at night, the stable, and brought out, brought out during the day. And at the end of the room was the manger or the troughs from which the animals would feed. Either these would be indented, cut into the, into the room, or there would be a manger sitting on top of that made out of wood like we are used to. So this is most likely the setting that Jesus was born in. I think Luke's main point here is there was no room for them in the guest room. There was not a comfortable setting in which they... Jesus could be born. The city had been crowded with people. It was filled up. They found a space in somebody else's house, and Jesus was laid in that manger. And so this couple was not recognized as distinctive, set apart, a birth that was kind of unnoticed in this very busy city. John catches this in his prologue, I think, so well. 
He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so Luke paints a picture here, doesn't he? That's subtle, that's succinct, it's a stark narrative of just the ordinary and yet arduous way that the Son of the Most High God came into the world. Why? Why did Jesus come in this way? I believe it was because God's intent was to win our affection from us. He came to reveal his grace in a way that wooed us, that invited us in. He valued our freedom of choice and made room for us to be drawn to him in love. The 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard used a parable to capture the dilemma of the way that God put his love on public display. He thought, well, how does God come to us with all the regal splendor without overwhelming us with his power, his light, his majesty, and therefore we would have to choose to follow him? And he thought of a story. It's kind of like a prince falling in love with a peasant maiden. Well, how does he woo her? Well, he could bring this peasant maiden who lives in a small hut to his castle and present all the splendor and glory that is his and says, I want you to be mine. Or he thought, well, I could go from my castle down to here little peasant hut with my charioteers and my regal garb, and yet she would be overwhelmed. And so the prince decides to go on her terms. He dons the garb of a woodsman, And goes to woo her without all of the regal splendor with him. The Apostle Paul captures the divine humility in the early hymn of the church. He writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And he was found in human appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the Christmas story, I think we already see the foreshadowing of the most humble event that we could possibly imagine, Jesus' death on the cross. Doug Hammarskjöld, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, I think captured this so well when he wrote, How proper it is that Christmas should follow Advent. For him who looks towards the future, the manger is situated on Golgotha, and the cross has already been raised in Bethlehem. You see, Jesus came to us in a way that his grace made the invitation in humility so that we could respond in love. And that grace that was that invitation was that assault on the pride of the human spirit. Some of you probably remember the newscaster Harry Reasoner from a generation ago, CBS newscaster. And he captured the wonder of Christmas, I think, so powerfully. He says, if Christmas is the anniversary of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless baby, it's quite a day. People are afraid of God and angels and standing in very bright light. But everyone has seen babies, and almost everyone likes them. So if God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly here. And if he wanted to know people as well as to rule them, he moved correctly. So it comes beyond logic. 
It's what a bishop called divine insanity. It's either a falsehood or it's the truest thing in all the world. It's the story of the great innocence of God, the baby. And it's such a dramatic shot to the human heart that if it's not true, for Christians, nothing is true. So God's grace is displayed in overwhelming humility in order to crack the fortress of pride that resides in us all. Many of us have probably uh, either seen or read the book Les Miserables, right? As you know, that story is a story of redemption. And the main character of the story is Jean Valjean. He's just been released from prison after 19 years in captivity. Uh, he was there because he had stolen a loaf of bread to, in order to feel it, feed his family. And he's an embittered man. He's embittered because he has to carry around a yellow card that identifies himself as an ex-convict. And of course, this makes it very difficult for him to get a job or find a place to live, just as it would today. But the Christ figure in the story, the bishop, takes him in, brings him into his residence. But Jean Valjean is still bitter. He wants to take justice into his own hands. And how does he repay the kindness of the bishop? He steals the bishop's silver cutlery. And flees. But the police have their eye on him all the time. And so they pick him up. They arrest him. Uh, Jean Valjean gives this story that the bishop gave him the silver cutlery. But they haul him back to the bishop to find out whether this is true. And of course, Jean Valjean is expecting justice to come down upon him. When the bishop says, no, I never gave him that silver cutlery. But what does the bishop say? Bishop says that indeed he has given him the silver cutlery. And then he adds, yes, but I gave you the candlesticks too. Why didn't you take them along with your cutlery? And it's this unbounded grace, this unnatural grace that begins to assault the heart of Jean Valjean. And Victor Hugo demonstrates how much he understands the gospel and he writes in Les Miserables, In opposition to this celestial tenderness, Jean Valjean summoned his pride, the fortress of evil in man. He dimly felt the priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained, that his hardness of heart would be complete if he resisted this kindness, that if he yielded, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of other men had for many years filled his soul, that this time he must conquer or be conquered. And the bishop said to Jean Valjean, I have bought your soul for God. Isn't this what Jesus has done? That he's bought our soul for God. That we would let him in. The imagery in the New Testament is wonderful and powerful. God the Son kneels before his disciples and washes their feet. The Son of Man says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Paul writes, though he was by nature God, he counted equality with God something not to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became nothing. Someone has defined humility as not thinking less of ourselves, 
but thinking of ourselves less. When we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with the truth that our lives have been bought with a price, that we have been purchased by God, then we will think of ourselves less because we are in awe of the mystery and the wonder of this divine insanity. I'm going to ask you to become quiet now and pray with me. And to see if we can welcome into our hearts again this gift of grace that is the assault on our pride. Let's pray together. Jesus, we see you on bended knee before us, ready to wash our feet. We sense our unworthiness. We want to push you away knowing how undeserving we are. We know the story of our lives. The regrets that we would love to rewrite. Yet with full knowledge of it. You are before us saying. Let me wash you. And make you clean. Will we let you, Jesus, love us? Will we let you embrace us? He has made this journey for you and for me.